Hi, my name is Ruby, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant, and you're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast you'll be listening to today is entitled Women's Bodies and Cultural Religious Mixed Messages, originally produced and published by Sherry Burton of the Women Seeking Wholeness Podcast. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you. Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. So many syllables. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Thank you for joining me today. I've been wanting to interview you for a while and I wanted to wait until it felt like the timing was lining up with um, some of my other guests I'm interviewing because this, I feel like this topic with women and sexuality, especially within, you know, religious context deserved mm-hmm. a lot of exploration and many voices. And so I know that you're very, very passionate about, and you and I had this discussion, you know, just previously about kind of being a whistleblower to some cultural discrepancies that you see in the tribe you love, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, Mormon women, Mormonism. Um, Mm -hmm. I love this tribe as well. And I've been a whistleblower in my own right, but not in this domain until now, because I'm just seeing it come up so much. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, women kind of not owning their sexuality and not knowing what to do with their sexuality and their feelings Mm -hmm. and their desires. So what have you seen? I mean, we can kind of, um, we can talk about what you've seen with your clients, excuse me, but what I'm, I'm most interested in starting with is kind of your personal journey and why, why you even felt to do your doctoral dissertation on desire in, within Mormon women, um, and exploring that, like, why did that, why was that even a thing as you went into your career and how did that kind of grab your attention? Sure. Well, I think, you know, I, as a young person was always a kind of thoughtful, reflective person that was always kind of studying people, even though I thought that was normal. I thought everybody was doing that, but I was in a large family, eight children, and I, I was just kind of an observer, uh, observer of human behavior. And so, I I think I was in the self um, uh, increasingly self aware of the position that I knew I was loved and valued as a female in the church, and yet I could see that men were valued more. Mm-hmm. So there was this experience of I knew I mattered, and I knew God loved me, but the men mattered more. They had the priesthood. God was male. Um, polygamy was something that I learned about in middle school and was quite horrified to actually try and make sense of a God who would say that's the higher way. Because when I was growing up, we were somewhat unapologetic at the time that this was the higher order Mm, in heaven. And so that was just kind of mind bending for me. And then I think I also, you know, my parents had a very... Uh, typical, I don't know if typical is quite the right word, but they really lived out the ideals that I was learning at church. My dad was the stake president. He held church positions. He was a good man, right? But he was very much the stereotypical church leader and more stoic. He was the breadwinner. He was definitely the leader of the home. My mom was the homemaker. She loved being a homemaker. She literally baked bread. She was attractive. Uh, she loved being a mother. Um, but I could see the, the, the power differential between them. I, I knew my dad was the one who had, you know, he got the bigger vote for sure. And my mom was seen as a step down from him. They both saw her that way. Hmm. And 
So I loved my mother. I felt closer to her than my dad. Um, I wanted to become her in the sense I wanted to, I knew I wanted to get married. I knew I wanted to have children, but I was deeply ambivalent about taking her position because I saw it as a relatively powerless position. And this was not just something I was learning at, in my own home. I, I would go to church and I would learn that was the, the ideal way that, that you take your husband's name, you forsake your career, you forsake your development for the betterment of your family. And that that's the kind of ideal way to be a female. And I wanted to be the ideal because I wanted the status of that. I mean, <laughs> for lack of a better way of saying it, I, I, wanted, I wanted to be what other people that I loved expected me to be. Right, right. But yeah. I felt like I was walking into a trap. Mm-hmm. And, I, and so I, I was terrified of it. And I also had the other, the, also the experience of really feeling God in my life, feeling loved by God feeling in many ways that truths, principles that were being taught to me at church had a lot of profundity in them, that there was a lot of, that was meaningful for me in finding meaning in life. And so I was trying to reconcile both this experience of a sense of identity and purpose and a God who loved me with this sort of second class status of female (laughs) and how to make sense of all that. So I think the added thing was I was in a family that, while in many ways traditional, was not, um, in many ways, allowed a lot of autonomy among the children of thought of, you know, we all kind of provided for ourselves from age 12 on, which sounds kind of ridiculous, I think, to the (laughs) the modern ear. But that is to say there wasn't, my dad was a professor, my mom didn't work, there were eight of us. So it was kind of like anything you wanted above your basic needs, you would have to provide for yourself. So I wanted contact lenses. I found a way to earn those contact lenses when I was 13 years old. That was just a typical kind of thing for all of us. But there was also a lot of autonomy of thought. And I'm really grateful for that now looking back because I, I was a questioner and I didn't feel that having questions was going to threaten um, my sense of belonging within my own family. And, and that's um, huge right there because yes. not all Definitely. family systems within higher demand religions like Mormonism encourage yep. honest that's inquiry. Right. That's right. Because um, some are actually quite dogmatic and super orthodox. And so there isn't space to even question because you would be labeled... Uh, as I'm listening right. to you talk about how your family dynamics were, I'm like, are you sure we weren't raised in the same house? Like, <laughs> right. My dad wasn't, my dad is a convert to the church, but he, um, because he had the priesthood, there was a status there in the home that yes. was um, different than my mother's who was a stay at home mom. And, and my mother was a free thinker and she was also very, very um, loved being a mother as well. I mean, seven yes. kids and also beautiful and, Mm-hmm. and baked bread and all the things you're saying. Yeah. And but, but that power differential you speak to, um, yes. the reason it happens that way in the home and the, we, the reason a developing female would even perceive that power differential, because it's not just in the home, it's, it's, a, it's being played out in our church and yes. women having less visibility, having less of a voice, That's um, right. not being part of the final decision, if you will. The buck yep. stops at the male. He's the one who has the final, the final say. So that's right. 
I am we just were, we like were you. I, yes, exactly. Very, Maybe very self-aware. Uh, yes. <laughs> very self-aware. Just watching it play out going, why is it like this? And why are women second? And actually being a second born um, was quite more pronounced for me because this born mm. on the second, second child, you know, all these things that a second has shown up for me in my life. The number two. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, um, even going into the mission field, and seeing the power differential between the, the male missionaries and the female missionaries, myself being a female yeah. missionary going, oh, I really don't have a lot of leadership capacity here. I don't have the same status in terms of yes. input and yes. um, how things are managed. And so anyway, the, it's interesting you bring all that up. Polygamy literally put me into trauma as a nine-year-old. Yeah. Um, I, I, think I would say that's true for me too, actually. <laughs> I honestly didn't start unpacking it till I was almost 50 years old. I'm 51 now, but I was probably in my late forties before I really, really started to unpack that trauma that had developed, you know, almost 40 years prior. So, um, yeah, keep going. I'm fascinated. Yeah. There's a lot well, of and I think what's really kind of interesting is I think you and I are similar age. I think that there was less apology for the idea that the husband was the leader for polygamy. Kind of like, you know, if you can't get your head around that, that must mean there's something spiritually off in you. Right. So that was at least what some of my Sunday school teachers were saying more or less. And so it, it you know, we're now we're more like, well, the man presides, we're, we're more ambiguous and, uh, which can make it maybe harder for some people to kind of make sense of the messages they're getting. But there, it was so, you know, unabashedly, that men are above women and that it needs to be that way, that, you know, it really was, how, how do I make sense of a loving God who sees women as less than? Yes. Uh, and so. And even deeper, where is the mother figure alongside him, the, the, the spiritual yes. partner that we have no developed theology on? That's right. That's yeah. right. And maybe even feeling guilty that I wanted to know her, that I, that I, I believed in her and wanted to feel her and felt like that made me somehow bad that I was seeking her. So I think, you know, I think that in this family where I felt some freedom of thought and freedom of inquiry uh, without it jeopardizing my sense of self, I think it just allowed me to really think about how do I make sense of this? And, you know, especially because I grew up in Vermont where there were very few members of the church, our family was the church, meaning like we had all kind like firesides primary used to come and meet in our basement when I was little. So it, it was so much my experience of my extended family. So my investment in my people is very deep because they were my community in a way that maybe would not have been the same had I grown up in Utah. Yeah. I know that sounds sort of strange because oh, I get it. I get more it. Yeah. people, but this was more like, this is my group within this larger uh, cultural experience of feeling like I don't belong because I, you know, I definitely felt like a gent, you know, that I was among the Gentiles and that I was, you know, in this, I was different. So I've, like, I remember once when my mom got traveled back to Idaho to see her mother and my dad was at work and I got the flu and my mom's visiting teacher just happened to call, but I was home alone. I was maybe in sixth or seventh grade. And, um, and so she found out that I was there alone, that I was really ill. And so she just came and took me and took care of me. And, you know, tell my mom got back or my dad was back from work, I what the situation was. But, you know, that, that kind of 
sense of belonging and care mm. is really powerful. And so, so I was in this place of, I love this community. I love so many principles and, and ideas that have been taught in the gospel. I know they're true. I know that they're meaningful in my life. I feel God's presence. And yet I can't get this other piece worked out. And I just felt, you know, I would bring that into my relationship with God. And I, I felt permission to question it. Mm. And How powerful that is that? <laughs> Liberating. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, and it just led me into, you know, there was at one point I thought I was going to study design because I really loved architecture and all that. But then I just finally had the courage to, because it wasn't in my mind that I could get a PhD and be legitimate, that I would be even smart enough to do it. So I kind of put that dream aside because I was afraid of it. But after a couple of years, I was like, no, this is really what I want. So I changed my degree uh, from design to, to, um, to psychology and women's studies. And then I just one thing after, I knew I wanted to study marriage. I knew I wanted to help people have better relationships. And that just led me into sexuality and then my dissertation research and, and what I'm doing now. That's fascinating. Um, you and I have a very, very similar path, um, yeah. although I didn't go all the way with getting my PhD. I certainly dove into psychology and understanding family and with a very strong emphasis in women's studies, not academically pursuing it, although I did minor in sociology and have somewhat of an emphasis in women's studies, but I've really kind of um, bootstrapped my knowledge base of women's studies because I think because, you know, just talking from more of like a a spiritual perspective, kind of sacred contract context, I knew that I had to work with this. I had a work to do within um, awakening other females to Mm. be empowered, although I didn't have the conscious awareness of that when I was starting on my academic path, but now I'm really clear on it. And that's why I started this podcast to begin with. That's why I I teach and do what I do, because I just know that there are so many women who are silently, like we were feeling as young girls, right? Like, well, what's yeah. wrong with me? Why right. can't I, you know, what, what's missing in me that I'm not getting? It looks right. like everybody else is getting. And further for me, it was like, why isn't everyone else completely bugged by polygamy? Right. Why am I the only one that seems to be the squeaky wheel here? <laughs> right, um, right. And so I dared a question. And so I would just fill journals with all these questions that just didn't yes. add up. So you yes. got to this point in your path where you're now, you've niched into this. Why did you do your doctor? Explain to us what your doctoral dissertation was and why you felt drawn to do that. Well, I, you know, I was trying to come up with a dissertation topic and um, I actually was looking at the topic possibly of forgiveness and understanding what, you know, it was just an idea. I was also trying to kind of understand, was it mean to forgive and all that? But uh then I was asked to teach a human sexuality course to undergraduates at Boston College where I was getting my PhD. And I started, these were a lot of Catholic students, and I could see in their essays the struggle, especially among the females, around identity, sexuality. I mean, there's much more of this sort of Madonna horror ethic in Catholic culture. Um, and so I could see the double standard between the the male writing and the female writing. And it w- I had friends who were getting married who were not having good experiences. I was uh, dating my now husband at the time. And I was just thinking about, you know, there's a lot of good things to 
like in many parts, I've really valued the law of chastity and this idea of waiting until marriage of having a committed uh, intimate relationship. But I could see among my friends and I was self-aware enough within myself that, that there were mixed messages around how legitimate this was and could a woman have desire and so on. So I was really interested in what LDS women's experiences were around this and you know, how were women doing both premaritally and, and, and within marriage around sexuality? Because there was basically nothing out there in terms of research. And so I looked specifically at the, um, the radical feminist critique. Radical feminism is radical is for root. So mm-hmm. radical feminism is uh, the idea that at the root of women's oppression is dominant men, basically male-led organizations, societies, religions that are constructing women in reference to their own wants, to their own dominance. And so women are being given messages about their identity, about their sexuality that serve the egos or the narcissism of the men. That's the basic Mm -hmm. radical feminist idea. So I took that critique. and under and analyzed it, you know, thoroughly, and said, you know, basically, <clears throat> this critique would suggest that Mormonism, even though it's a benevolent patriarchy, because it's a male-led organization, because men are the ones that define, in a sort of official sense, what female is, what the ideal female is, what the ideal male is, and how each relates to sexuality, is this ideology of gender roles as prescribed by this group of men. Um, and, and I don't mean just church leaders. I mean, like, you know, that men lead the home and all that. Basically, are women internal, internalizing their sexuality and their identity in ways that are consistent with this critique? Or is, is the church a different case? Meaning because it's benevolent patriarchy and does, is this protective of women to have men that are invested in committed sexuality and so on? So I wanted to see through that lens. Explain what you mean by benevolent patriarchy, because I'm very familiar with the term benevolent sexism, and I'm thinking this is where you're going. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, benevolent, so you've got like more overt forms of patriarchy if you were to take radical Islam, fundamentalist Islam. That would be uh, a more overt form of patriarchy, which is will literally like perform clitoridectomies. You can't have your sexuality. We will dominate, abuse you, take advantage. I mean, I know I'm maybe right, overly, right. Yeah, right, totally. right. But that's a more overt form of domination. Benevolent patriarchy is men still lead, men are in charge, but the benevolent part is we are protective. We take care of you because you are weaker, because you are in a step down position, but we will function in a way that protects you and keeps you safe. Got it. So there is a better, better intention in it, but it's certainly not about equal equals relating perhaps in different ways as male and female more, but more of a paternalistic or protective framing. So, you know, it's not the overt, you know, we're better than you, but it's a more protective idea that you may not have as much access to God's will as we do and as much ability to know what's right and wrong as we do. And therefore we will, we will give you that input and that insight. So you live a good life, but we are the ones that are in charge. Yes. And what that does to the developing psyche of a young woman. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, and it's so subtle and it's obviously a subconscious kind of programming we get. It's not like we're all talking to each other as young women going, you know, there's really a benevolent sexism thing happening here. Yeah, right. No, no. And I think that in a lot of ways, you know, I think, you know, men and women as groups are different from one another and women you know, girls are more attuned to the thoughts, feelings, desires of others. It's probably part of what uh, allows, it, it's, how to say it, it's biologically adaptive for women to be more wired up this way because it's what allows them to get themselves out of bed at two in the morning to keep their offspring alive, okay? Yeah. So they, they, that is to say, I think, women as a group tend to be more attuned to what other people want from them. But in a patriarchy, what at least feminism would argue is that that tendency gets exploited by basically saying, these are the things you need to be, this is how you need to operate to be the most desirable or ideal female. And so I talk in my, a lot of the the online courses I do and workshops and so on about, you know, men are taught about desire and women are taught to be desirable. Mm. Men are taught agentic positions of choosing and acting, and women are taught positions of being acted upon. Mm. And so these are, it's easy, especially if you're a female and you experience that men are the ones in charge and you're very attuned to what the men around you want or the, the adults around you want, to start conforming your behavior into the shape that's going to give you some sense of status or belonging or safety. And so that is a way in which you just sort of unwittingly can lose track of the issue of what do I desire? What do I think? What do I feel? What do I want? Mm -hmm. And those are very important questions for developing your strength. There Yes. And it's interesting to hear you talk about this because there, I mean, this isn't just relegated to Mormonism. I know this is pervasive across many Christian cultures and other religions, but I remember seeing something that went viral. It was like an image that went viral and it was, I'm not even sure what Christian denomination, but it was a conference being held and they had, uh, you know, just a, a short title and picture on this flyer of each of the speakers and the topic of the conference was being a, a, a woman of the Lord, being a good Christian wife and mother or something. And all of the speakers were men. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. exactly. And so everyone's like, what the? And um, <laughs> so that went viral. But, but also yeah. there's a prevailing ideology mm-hmm. in the Christian community of I am second. And it's not just for women. It's right. actually, it's, and I get it, like God first, you know, we come second. But for women, it's almost like we're third. And so it just becomes this whole like how, it's really interesting you say about being acted upon. I hadn't really thought of that context before, but it's totally true. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And and I see see the disparity too, just in visibility outside of like what the expected behaviors are. It's like, where are the real voices of feminine leadership? Yes. Exactly. So there's not a lot, like a lot of women say to me, I don't even know how to envision what a strong woman is because everything in my mind is you're either good because you defer and you do what you're asked or you are mean and dominant and cruel. So it's sort of like you, you either, 
you're either this really unfeminine, unacceptable version, which is dominant and mean, or you're passive. And, and so it's like there's, there's just very little role modeling of what it is to be both female, feminine, and strong. Um, mm-hmm. How you can be true to yourself and be strong as well. And, you know, I think this idea when you're given the idea, you know, if you feel like men are in charge, and being chosen, being wanted is your way into safety. Well, then you're very tied into what is the ideal female in the mind of the man. And mm-hmm. she's deferential and she's beautiful and she's not too sexual, sexual for him, but not sexual for anybody else. And, you know, it's about how do I, when you re, you know watch Jane Austen films and so on, in a society in which women couldn't own land, couldn't have property, of course, they're tuned into being chosen. It's their only way to be safe. Yeah. It's their only way to find security. And so everything's about being desirable, but it robs you of the ability to assert your own mind and your own desires and to, and to think about in your unique uh, God-given mind and body and reality, how do you choose and act and bring strength to bear on your life and in the relationships that you're in? Instead, it gets wasted away in the question of who, what does everybody else want me to be? I think we really don't have a way to look at a woman as both holy and sexual. No, we don't. That's exactly what my work is. And it's that's how powerful, brave work. <laughs> yeah, and very, very meaningful work. Because the, really the question is, so many of us think, and I think men think this too, is that you can't be good and sexual. Mm-hmm. We men, men, you know, grow up learning the idea that masculinity and sexuality are kind of inherently linked. Real men want sex kind of idea. And that, but femininity, it's considered incongruous, that the really feminine woman doesn't really have a thought for sexuality because she's naturally desireless, needless and wantless and accommodating of others' wants and needs. And so she, her femininity gets expressed perhaps in being in response to her husband's desire and being there for him, but she's not full of desire. And so that, that's sort of, and so if you are a woman and you're thinking, I do have sexual feelings, what's the matter with me? I mean, this is what a lot yeah. of women feel. They'd push it down as a, because they don't want their sexuality to interfere with their desirability because that would make them, you know, at risk in a sense for not being chosen and given that kind of social status of being wanted. So a lot of people feel like I can't have this be a part of me. I think men understand their desires can be a part of masculinity, although I, at least in the LDS church, there's, I think, a lot of ambivalence about, is there a way to be sexual and good? Because we really link sexuality with evil. We, we, yeah. we make the two, how does, what's the word I want to say? We confound the two pieces. We, we make them very much one and the same, that, that sexuality is Satan's playground as opposed to there are ways to be in relationship to your sexuality that create strength and goodness and peace and ways to be in relationship to your sexuality that create confusion, conflict, turmoil, and self-betrayal and betrayal of others. Well, in Mormonism in particular, I think where I see the most damage happening is are the worthiness issues that start very young. Yes. And they're all centered around sexuality. Yes, Um, exactly. Well, you know, do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, well, I, I do, again, it's back to this idea that you know, if you were to take any sacrament meeting during the sacrament, anybody that's thinking about their sinfulness, I would take a bet that about 90% of it is around sexuality. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I would. Yeah. That's a that's a dramatically wrong <laughs> way of thinking, in my opinion, because it's not the existence of our sexuality and desire that undermines us. If, in fact, being in a panic about that is like we're throwing all our strength away because we're constantly obsessing about the presence of something that God gave us, which is our desires and our feelings. Um, uh, what I think we need to be more concerned with is how we're in relationship to our lives and other people. And are we creating goodness through how we are relating to the people around us and including how we're in relationship to our sexuality? Are we bringing integrity to those choices, but not this, what I think we set up is this deep anxiety about the presence of desire, about the presence of sexual feelings and start pathologizing it and really driving a division within the minds and psyches of a lot of adolescents uh, and actually creating, creating the problems that we then see emerging. So we are complicit in creating the problem because if you problematize, let's say at age 12, we were to start saying to everybody, if you are even drawn to chocolate cake and you even like ice cream, you're sinful and Satan has gotten your heart and your mind. And so the next time you're at a birthday party, just keep your eyes away from it. Well, you drive obsession. <laughs> yes. Right. You, you drive. Don't in, think about a pink elephant. Just yeah. never think about a pink elephant. <laughs> yeah. And so you drive this paradoxical obsession where you're either like in a anorexic position or in a bulimic or, uh, you know, compulsive overeating position where you, you drive it into, and rather than like, of course, you're going to feel those feelings. Of course, that looks good. How do, can you be in relationship to food or sexuality and desires in a way that makes you stronger, that allows you to be the kind of person and adult that you want to be? How do you relate to these pleasures in a way that blesses your life and the lives of those that you're in relationship with? Not the presence is a problem. Yeah. And, and so when we get really fixated on that, we, we drive people into compulsive behavior and then ask them to go to their bishops for eternity to try and solve it. And it's never solvable. Yeah. And even the programs that I see starting up, for instance, to help young men with masturbation and pornography are exacerbating it because they're trying yes. to fight it rather than work with it. Exactly. Um, they get stuck in this loop of such shame and the yes. shame continues to perpetuate. I'm curious because I know you do desire workshops for women. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I want to come sometime. Yeah. I know you live, are you in the Chicago area? Chicago, yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I know you do this throughout the country. So yep. tell me, I mean, without giving away the, you know, all your intellectual property and, you know, the heart soul of what you're about sure. with that. Like, I'm curious about how you help a woman foster desire without shame. Well, what I would actually do is I think what one of my basic arguments is everybody has desire. I mean, and I don't mean just in the sexual realm. I just mean, well, let me back up a little bit. The Eros energy is fundamental to being alive. And by Eros energy, I mean this sort of creative, life-giving energy of engaging in the world, creating, thinking, developing, acting. That's the energy of being alive and awake. And... And so, and it's at the core of the word eroticism, right? So having good sexuality isn't about uh, you've figured out how to sort of flip the switch and, and make yourself want things and make yourself do things with your spouse. It's a way of fully embracing your personhood 
your sexuality, your desires in your life and being awake and alive and well. That's the woman that wants to be sexual. And she doesn't, she wants to be sexual, not because she's going to do what her husband wants. She, she's alive and awake and she's creating something with her spouse. Mm -hmm. She's bringing herself into the sexual relationship because she is her own person. So the first thing I'm doing is challenging this idea of women being in response to other people's desires as a way of being female. That's how a lot of people are even coming into the seminar is how do I produce this desire I'm supposed to have so I can keep my husband happy with me? It's the wrong framing and it's designed to, it's unanswerable because the paradigm that they're operating in prevents them from the solution. Mm. That's so interesting. I, I actually follow a couple of other spiritual teachers, feminine leaders in different uh, domains, kind of thought leader type women. And they're all saying your sexuality is for you. It's not for your spouse first. Like just because you're in a partnership, you don't, you know, you don't, I guess, outsource your own sovereign sexual energy. Yeah. Um, it's yours. It's for you. So what would you say to somebody who doesn't have a partner? Because we, okay, let's go back to the worthiness interviews first before we, we tackle that because I want to kind mm-hmm. of frame this. Um, let's say that you haven't had the opportunity to get married and you're mm-hmm. well into your 30s or 40s or even 50s. Maybe you have had a spouse pass away. Um, and you had a great sexual relationship, or maybe you've never had a sexual relationship. And so you just haven't had the opportunity to find a partner, but you want to stay religious and you want to stay pure and all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to pass a temple recommend interview, or you have to go through in, in the Catholic uh, tradition, you know, you would have to go to confession, right? Um, many religious systems are against masturbation or self-pleasure in any form. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you work with a woman who's kind of in that space of like, because I have a radical view on it. Um, I understand it can go away. And you're the third person I've interviewed about this. And the other two women that I talked to are really aligned with what I feel about it, which is it could go a little crazy where you could, it's almost like self-abuse or an addiction where you really don't need a partner and you're just like, I'm good. But then, um, I have a radical view in the sense that I don't believe the church is, should be involved in anyone's sexuality, period. Mm-hmm. None. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think the church itself is not only are, are we constantly obsessing about our desires and wants, but it's because the church is. And so yeah. like you said, they're, um, implicit, they're, they're complicit in the whole problem. They're feeling the right. fire of it. So I think in, in a reverse psychological stance, it would be, hey, what if we totally backed off? I think we'd saw, see a lot less addiction. I think we'd see a lot yes. less of these problems in the shame cycle that comes alongside yes. it. So I, I think if, if the church is, is going to be involved, it's doing what it's supposed to do, which is, is offering a vision of what it is to relate to your sexuality in a way that creates strength in you and in others just as you would relate to your desires as a way. When I think of putting God first, it's, it's putting the good first. What is good? That's what God represents. And God is this relational being that helps us have the courage to reach towards what is good. So it's not about micromanaging behaviors. And I, you know, I think that when we get down and we're micromanaging behaviors, we lose track 
we're missing the mark. We lose track of what is the vision or the goal that you then are walking towards and your behaviors fall in place when you hold the goal. When you obsess about some particular, it becomes, you become unable to grow strength because you get caught up in this obsessive perfectionism. So, um, so that, that, that's what I think, if, if we're going to give the church a role, it's giving a vision, if, it can, if it's developed enough to offer it, a vision about what it is to, to relate to our embodiment and our humanity to create goodness. I mean, this is very much in LDS theology, but we lose sight of it. Because well, until we have women in equal uh, authority and visibility and part of the input as to policy and all of those things, that will never happen. Well, it, it may <laughs> not, because, uh, because I, well, I think that it might be about women articulating that idea, although what I would say is it's a function of us growing into more mature relationship Meaning the ideal of creating Zion is about all of us developing more. And you can't really have a system in which one gender is valued over the other and never have Zion. You can't have that. You can't have unequal relationships and create peace. Right. You know, when people are operating in one up, one down relationships in marriages, uh, that's the first thing I address because you can't create an intimate sexual relationship in a system of over and under functioning. So the church, uh, I see, is an organism that's growing and evolving, or it has the potential to. Right. And the people are all part of that organism. And a lot of times we kind of hold back and, and wait for somebody else to get the revelation rather than seeing ourselves as having a responsibility to the well-being of the organism and doing our part and speaking with integrity within it. So I, could not I agree that, more. That's the wave yeah. of the future in, in any institution. Um, that's right. It's the organic voice that, um, you know, a series of people who awaken to the distortion and start to speak it out instead of just are like, I'm out of here. I'm not going to yes. talk about it. Um, so I, what I think would you? Our, yeah. Well, I think that's just part of our spiritual, how to say, I think that in our LDS theology, those elements are there. They just get backgrounded off and, by the idea of obedience and a, a kind of rigid system as opposed to we do embrace embodiment as fundamental to coming into godliness. That is to say sexuality is fundamental to our spiritual development, that the individual has a divine, has a relationship to the divine and is able to know and speak with integrity and foster the growth and development of the group. When we move into that passive, obedient, focused um, position, it's, it's spiritually weak and we're complicit in our weakness and call it good. Mm. So we're feeding that sexism, not unknowingly. So what would yes. you say to the woman in the scenario that I gave about not knowing what to do with her sexuality because she hasn't been blessed with a partner? Well, I would say that she's in some ways in the same dilemma that any person might be in that has something that they want, but they don't have it. Meaning, and so, meaning she may want the intimacy of a partnership, but doesn't have that option in, in, uh, in front of her. That I would say the most important thing, in my opinion, is not the question of whether or not 
she should be allowed to masturbate. That's not the way I would think about the question. The question is, is she in a position where she is engaging her integrity in her life around what she believes will create goodness and not being in this kind of complicit dependency as she strives to create what is good in her life in the face of the choices she has. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have the choices she wants. She has more limited choices. But what for her is to create goodness and strength in the face of that? And I can't say that I know what that would be for any given individual, but I think it's a very important question for her to be asking. Just as I would talk about somebody who's in a marriage, in a maybe a sexless marriage, or in a marriage where their partner won't deal with their limitations. Life's about hard choices sometimes. My goal is not to be directive so much around how people handle those hard choices, but to help people move out of a dependent position, mm. looking for someone to tell them what that is for them, and looking for them to bring their integrity and their courage to hard choices. Mm, beautiful. Yes, because uh, another thing I've become very passionate about is um, claiming your own inner authority for your own life domain. And women in particular um, are rising up to that awakening, I feel like, and and wanting to know how how this fits into a religious structure and what that means for them. Um, If they haven't been granted institutional authority or even, you know, quote unquote, divine authority, in an official capacity, mm-hmm. how can they still align with that in their own life and in their own body? And you, you used the word embodiment. That should be the goal of every institution, especially religious institutions, is mm-hmm. to not shame the body or reject it or right. see it as evil or the vehicle to right. temptation. But right. how do we foster love and respect and honor for this body in a non-shaming way? Right. Exactly. And, you know, it's, it's finding that because what I think a lot of us do is one of the things I do talk about sometimes is that, you know, feminism has done a good job of articulating the way that women have been pressured into a one down position, the way that we have been pressured into dependency, which is all true. But I think sometimes the piece that's under articulated is the temptation that's in dependency for not just for members of the church and not just for women, for humanity we're often looking for somebody to basically hook our cart to and not have to handle the anxiety of making choices in a complex world. We want somebody who's going to solve our problems and give us a sense of security. That's, you know, what we gets exploited in politics a lot. Right. And mm-hmm. so a lot of people might, you know, even leave the church, but then they so go and find some other ideologue to follow rather than the difficult work of taking deeper responsibility for our lives. And I I think that's more where spiritual development happens, is in taking deep responsibility for your choices amidst challenging options. That's where I think spiritual development happens, is in that agency, that self-assertion in the face Mm -hmm. of complexity. And, you know, we're sort of we really think often in, in the frame of what's the right answer, like there is a right answer, as opposed to it's a morally complex world and what is my best guess at what will create the best reality, not knowing all the implications. That's how people grow and get wiser and stronger. And yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love that. I think, you know, um, 
it was just yesterday that, and because I do have college age students and I live in Utah County, which is kind of um, very much predominantly Mormon LDS. Um, just yesterday, um, the church redacted a statement that was misunderstood and BYU campus went into this uproar. Um, LGBTQ students at BYU who have kind of been closeted around showing any kind of dating or affection because it, it was part of the BYU honor code um, that they not um, when the church did their policy changes within the official church handbook. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of the professors and students took, you know, licensure to show um, public displays of affection within homosexual relationships. And so anyway, they, the, um, they recanted it yesterday in an official church letter and a lot of the BYU students um, it was so interesting to see the division, but some of the BYU students were picketing and others were blasting the picketers. And so I saw all this perpetuation of shame. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with what happened yesterday, but... I'm not really, actually. Okay, I, so, I, know, I, I know there was some... Uh, yeah, I just had a sense of the letter that came out and that people were upset, but I don't know any of the specifics. Yeah, so they did a live stream of some of the picketing and... and um, you know, people who are protesting. And, and I, I know this podcast will air a couple of weeks after this fact, but, mm-hmm. um, but, the, but the gist of all of this is that, you know, we, yeah, the, especially as it relates to sexual orientation, because we could just say that, that we're talking here to this point about like monogamous, heterosexual, committed, marital, you know, all that. But then there's this whole other demographic, right? The marginalized who are trying to understand their sexuality and their gender identity. Um, And that really compounds the other shaming factors. Right. Absolutely. And so is there, what's your question? Yeah, no, I was just going to say like, maybe you could speak to that. Just the identity confusion confusion on top of the the shaming that already exists for everybody. Yeah. Well, I mean, the really challenging thing, especially if you're gay or lesbian or bisexual, is that you're you're in a often in a church community that you love that has taught you about God and goodness and then this deep sense that who I am is wrong or defective in some way or shameful that it can't be expressed and and it can't be shown and that's it's it's incredibly destructive to the self-awareness and identity of any individual that's growing up in that um division if that's the right word in that that contradiction and and often this is happening without anybody really being aware because it's something they know about themselves and they're trying to make sense of it and every time they hear a message that teaches them that who they are is wrong to be able to make sense of oneself and who god is, is 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 really deeply impaired and so at a minimum we owe our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, profound compassion for what mm-hmm. they're trying to reconcile within a community that they yeah. love that Absolutely. hasn't grown up enough to make room for them. I think the the sentence that has caused some of the uproar, confusion, or even maybe I would say trauma to LGBT students and those even in the larger outside of BYU that that read this was that the reason they had um, come back and said, oh, no, never mind. You can't, you're not going to be disciplined for being LGBTQ. Um, mm-hmm. You're not going to be kicked out of BYU. 
But, and for those who are listening who don't understand uh, Mormon culture, uh, BYU is Brigham Young University, which is a church-owned private institution. Higher, it's, it's an amazing um, school. It's very highly um, respected academic institution. But the phrase in the official letter from the church into um, that came through the president of BYU and then got filtered to everyone else was mm-hmm. that because there is no eternal marriage, Mm-hmm. for homosexual people that is why you cannot date uh, and show open affection at BYU that was the doctrinal basis for why um, it was taken back and it actually got a lot of before this um, a lot of the BYU students were like oh my gosh like we're free we can mm-hmm. we can hold hands or you know we can say we're dating or or about, yes they opened that up and then they closed it Mm-hmm. And then all their, the students got re-traumatized and even advocates for those who are friends of the LGBT students got traumatized and there was no apology. So when we say we're behind the times and we say it's not necessarily because these are not faith promoting individuals who actually want to be at a church led institution who have a degree of wanting to have connection to God and are looking to the larger church to offer that support that's very traumatizing. So anyway, I was just saying that's kind of up right now. It's kind of a, a thing that's causing a stir. Yes, it's hard. And, and no, growth is hard. And um, it's painful because we have a pretty heterosexual theology, right? <laughs> and, and, I'm, I, and so it's a hard process, I'm sure, for church leadership to figure out how do we resolve this. And I'm not when we have a real responsibility, I think Christ has taught us that we have a real responsibility to each other and particularly to the vulnerable. And so I believe that at the core of our theology is the ideal of love. And that if we bring love to bear, we will figure this out. We'll, we'll figure out how we hold on to the best in our theology and hold on to our brothers and sisters that, um, are different than we are okay so that is to say we this process of growing into a more divine community a stronger community has to be driven by love and how you look out for those that are more vulnerable and i feel like that naturally comes to women and mothers i mean not to say that men don't have that capacity but it flows from women and so putting women into positions where they have more of a say in inclusivity will expand this divine community rather than what's happening right now is a lot of people becoming disillusioned. Yeah, or, or like as Joseph Smith said, in contradiction, truth is made manifest. And so to know what's true, you have to bring lots of different voices to the table mm-hmm. to struggle with, meaning women have particular perspectives that are meaningful and men have particular perspectives that are meaningful. And it's in that struggle that you find what is most true and most wise. And, and so, how do we so i agree with you we're trying to develop but limiting the voices that can be a part of that meaningful endeavor absolutely well this has been really enlightening it's been really great to bounce these ideas back and forth and um, i think that you're offering a brave work and i honor you for it i think uh, you're going to be inspiring especially this next up-and-coming generation who are seeing the distortions and the you know dysfunctions within the culture and who have a desire to be fully embodied and to express themselves in healthy 
sexual ways and and still stay on the path of holiness so yes thank you so much for your time today thank you my pleasure thank you for listening if you'd like to learn more about dr finlayson fife and the work that she does check out the links in our show notes below to learn more about where you can find dr finlayson fife's website her online courses information about her upcoming events information about her free facebook group and more thank you for being here